Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Lang, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 26th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, July 18. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. One of the biggest stories in the legal world in 2023 has been the spate of ethics controversies surrounding the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as the lower federal courts. And one of the most frequently quoted commentators on these controversies has been Gabe Roth, executive director of Fix the Court. I've been wanting to do a deep dive into judicial ethics, and given his encyclopedic knowledge of and active involvement with this topic, Gabe struck me as an excellent guest. In case you're not familiar with it, Fix the Court is a nonpartisan 501c3 organization that advocates for non-ideological fixes that would make the federal courts, especially the U.S. Supreme Court, more open and more accountable to the American people. Gabe founded the organization in 2014. Previously, he managed the Coalition for Court Transparency, a national alliance of media and legal organizations that advocated for the broadcast of Supreme Court proceedings. And before that, he worked in political consulting and journalism. Without further ado, here's my interview of Gabe Roth. Gabe, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, David. So you're a bit different from my typical guest, since you're not a lawyer by training, but through your work at Fix the Court, you're very knowledgeable about law and the legal system. But before we turn to that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee with my parents and sister and went to Wash U for undergrad. And I went to Northwestern Journalism School for grad school and then started working in local news. Didn't love that. So transitioned into consulting and moved to D.C., political consulting. And one of the first clients that I had, I was doing PR for a group of habeas attorneys at Guantanamo, like a bipartisan group of attorneys. And this was during Lumidian and Aloda versus U.S. in 2007. And then, you know, we planned a press conference on the press in the steps of the Supreme Court. And I think from like that moment, I was hooked. So went in and out, did other work, worked for a governor, worked for a city council, did other consulting work, but then came back and started Fix the Court about nine years ago now. Let me ask you, why didn't you go to law school, actually, given your interest in legal issues? Did you ever want to go to law school? Was that something that you considered at any point? It was, it was. I even took the LSAT my senior year of college. I was thinking of going to law school, and it was one of these things where, like, every single one of my friends, even, you know, my best friend who was a business undergrad, you know, friends from my freshman dorm and from my poli-sci major, my anthropology major, like, everyone was going to law school. And I was like, okay, what is going on here? You know, do I want to be part of the crowd? Do I want to join in and do what everyone else is doing? And I was like, okay, let me take some time off. So I spent a year in Israel volunteering after college. I actually worked at a TV station there and worked in immigration absorption centers and different schools teaching various subjects. And, you know, when I got back, I was like, okay, I think, you know, I want to do journalism. I think I'm more interested in the human element and people's stories than necessarily doing litigation, which by the time I got back, that's pretty much what everyone was heading towards in the mid 2000s. So yeah, I mean, I look and frankly, I mean, there have been times basically, 
during the last 15, 20 years when I've thought about it again. But I think given how long it is and how expensive it is and how I think I've done okay career-wise without it, you know, I've decided that it's not for me. Okay, that makes sense. And for my listeners who are not familiar with it, which I suspect is a small group, can you give us a brief summary of the work of Fix the Court? Sure, we'd be happy to. So Fix the Court is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that advocates for non-ideological fixes to the federal court system and primarily the U.S. Supreme Court. So we want to bring what we say is the most powerful, least accountable part of the federal government, i.e. the Supreme Court and the lower courts, into the 21st century through various fixes. So those things being greater broadcast access and access to public documents. We want to end life tenure on the Supreme Court. We want the justices and the lower courts to follow any for the Supreme Court or stricter for the lower courts code of conduct and ethics code. We want the justices to sell all their stocks and be more open about their recusal practices. We want them to have more thorough financial disclosure and travel reports. And for the justices specifically, we want more information around their public events. So we know, you know, when they are meeting in public and who they're seeing and when they're speaking to folks and when they are public events, have those events broadcast. So it's sort of just, you know, a bunch of different disparate elements, but under the guise of we just think that these six areas would help bring the courts more into the 21st century and help the American people understand more what they do. Now, before you founded Fix the Court, you were also involved in a predecessor organization focused on yeah. transparency? How would you describe that? Yeah, the work? Coalition for Court Transparency just came out of the fact that about, I guess, 11 years ago, I was working at another one of these consulting shops in D.C. and a lot of our clients had cases in the federal court. So these were same-sex marriage plaintiffs. These were voting rights plaintiffs. And they were in Texas or Maine or California. And they're like, okay, you know, if our case ever gets to, you know, SCOTUS or even, you know, the DC circuit, we'll just, you know, turn on C-SPAN 4 and watch our case. And like, I'm like, that's not a thing. That's not how it happens. There are no cameras in the Supreme Court. And, you know, if you want to go and watch, you've got to camp out in some cases for the cases that we're talking about several days in advance. So that sort of led me to think, okay, you know, my background is in broadcast journalism. And so I worked with groups both on the left and the right. I think it was 20 different groups to advocate for cameras in the Supreme Court. And obviously that didn't happen, but I think it sort of opened, you know, some neural pathways for me. We had this one event at the press club. It was Judge Ken Starr, Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor from Ohio, Neil Katyal, Pete Williams from NBC News, Tony Morrow from National Law Journal. Like the audience was great. Robert Bork's son randomly showed up. And, you know, we had this event and it started as just like a cameras in the court event and they all support cameras. But, you know, after the first 15 or 20 minutes, it was just like, okay, why is there no code of conduct? Or, okay, why don't we understand their recusals? And it just sort of started spinning the wheels, being like, okay, well, the justices don't do cameras, but what other things should they be doing that would make it easier for the public to sort of understand who they are and what they're all about and, you know, bring them more towards public expectations of transparency in the 21st century? So many of these fixes and reforms you've described, they don't really seem to have an ideological valence. No. I happen to agree with many of them. And for what it's worth, as you mentioned, Fix the Court is a 501c3 organization. There are restrictions and limitations on the types of activity you can do. You can't be partisan. So why is Fix the Court viewed, at least among conservatives, as a, quote, left-wing outlet, quote, in the words of the Wall Street Journal's editorial board? And are you personally to the left? I know that a lot of your consulting and political work before was for the Democratic side rather than the Republican side, right? Yeah, yes. So I worked at firms that were more Democratic than Republican, for sure. But 
you know, it, I was really lucky, I think, or it was my, you know, personal assets that at each of these firms, I was doing bipartisan work. So like, when I was at one firm, I was, you know, working on, like I said, habeas attorneys, and that was Republicans and Democrats together, vis-a-vis Guantanamo. I had a dreamers organization that I helped start that was led by I think it was like a finance guy at the DNC and then George W. Bush's former commerce secretary. So I've always had these sorts of roles at these firms. I'll be honest. Yes, I am definitely more on the left side than on the right side. I consider myself center left politically. You know, I think a little bit heterodox in some issues, but overall, yeah, I mean, I definitely consider myself there. And I definitely try to keep my own personal views out of my work. I'm not always 100% successful at that. But I don't know why we're being targeted. I mean, I think maybe it's because we're being effective at getting the message out that there needs to be greater oversight at the Supreme Court. I mean, that doesn't sit well with some people. I mean, just look at the recent travel and gift scandals. Like, they're obviously more on one side of the aisle than the other. But like, if people think that by virtue of the fact that I'm pointing out Justice Thomas's gifts and luxurious travel and pointing out what, you know, Justice Alito's luxurious travel, if me highlighting these puts me in one partisan box, I mean, fine. Like, I just don't see it that way. And the other thing is, like, if you actually look at Fix the Court's work, I mean, it's so funny, too, because people are saying, okay, you know, he's left wing and he's doing these things. But like, I'm also the guy that is responsible for so many of the stories that are coming out about some of the ethics lapses of the left-wing justices, right? I published Justice Jackson's disclosure first that had her omissions, that noted her omissions. I've been pushing the Sotomayor book sales story for three years. I've been pushing <laughs> the Sotomayor and Gorsuch non-recusal of the Penguin Random House petition story for four years. I was looking at something else earlier and found something that I wrote on the very first day that Fix the Court launched about Justice Ginsburg's conflicts because of her work with the National Organization for Women and her husband's work on tax cases. So, you know, I get that people want to say that. But if you look at the actual work, you know, I think that it comes through as nonpartisan. And like, I can't help it that certain conservative justices are doing more shady things than certain liberal (laughs) justices. So one follow-up question. And I see your point. I think you're right. And I know that you've done work criticizing justices on both sides of the aisle. But why are your major funders more to the left than to the right? That's a good question. I've definitely reached out to foundations on the right and some nonpartisan ones. I mean, initially, we were part of New Venture Fund, and New Venture Fund generally funds more left-wing groups than right-wing groups. I mean, when I first started there, they were giving money to the Daily Caller News Foundation. So it's like definitely not homogeneous there. But, you know, I heard about them through the Constitutional Accountability Center and this guy who founded it named Doug Kendall. And Doug, he's a progressive And he was a friend of mine. He passed away a few years ago. But he had a bug in him about the junkets that lower court judges were taking. I mean, I remember reading about it and I got to meet him and I spoke to him about it. And then, you know, told me about New Venture Fund. And it just seemed like a, you know, a good place to try to find that sponsorship. And I think, you know, when people see that, they sort of associate Mm. you with one side. But overall, I mean, I've been trying, you know, to raise funds. And I think I do, I mean, I I don't check the ideology of the hundreds of people, you know, who you know, give us 10 bucks on Stripe or whatever each month. But, you know, I think that overall, that's, you know, just a legacy thing rather than me actively trying to do something or the other. Sure. And I think, unfortunately, in this polarized age, it's very much you have the red jersey or the blue jersey. And if they probably see you were previously associated with something left of center, then maybe they kind of view you that way. But 
Let me ask, you have had some people on the right go after Fix the Court recently. The Wall Street Journal editorial page and the Washington Examiner called you to task for failing to acknowledge in the Form 990, the form you have to file with the IRS as a nonprofit, that you engage in some lobbying. And back in May, you committed what you yourself acknowledged was a, quote, screw-up, close quote, when you accidentally disclosed some contributors to the examiner. So what did some people say, well, isn't it a bit rich or at least ironic for Fix the Court to be going around calling out the justices for disclosure problems when you can't get your own disclosures right? I definitely see the irony. Yes, yes, I get that. And look, here's the thing. We at Fix the Court are working to be better at compliance. I've, I've made that clear. The board has made that clear. We have finally hired professionals to help us out, which obviously I should have done from the start. And they're helping ensure that all of our paperwork is buttoned up and good to go. And you still can maintain your 501c3 status. Yes. What are the rules on that in terms of lobbying? Because you do openly support various pieces of legislation, for instance. I do. You're not endorsing candidates as far as I've seen, no. but you do support pieces of legislation. No, and we don't endorse judges, which I think is a little bit, you know, I, I don't know the rules fully on that, but we've never, you know, supported a judge or a justice for confirmation or opposed a judge or a justice for confirmation. But yeah, in terms of the 501c3 rules, basically there's, you know, direct lobbying on legislation where you're talking to members of Congress or their staffs on legislation. And I think last year that worked out to be like something like three and a half or four percent of my time. And then there's also grassroots lobbying, which is like when I put something on fixthecourt.com or I send out a press release being like, fix the court would like to see there be a cameras in the courts bill out next month from some senators or whatever. That counts as grassroots lobbying. And that's also, I think, about 4% of my time. So yeah, my, my confusion was I didn't hire lobbyists. So like, why does the IRS care how much time I spend? But turns out they do. I have been corrected. And that's, you know, being worked on as we speak. It has to be below a certain percentage, I think, right? Like 20 or something? It's generally 15 to 20% okay. of your time has to be not doing lobbying, which, you know, <laughs> in, in a world where I'm reading a ton of briefs, and spending a ton of time reading very verbose lawyers' writings is not very difficult. Mm -hmm. So having had to deal with the complex regulations, does this at least give you a certain sense of humility about the complexities of following all these disclosure rules? Sort of. Like, this is my first time doing it, right? When Fix the Corp was part of New Venture Fund, I never had to fill out these forms. And this is really my first time doing it. And at first, I didn't get help, which again, was the wrong idea. I think if you're a justice, and you've been a justice for five years, 10 years, 20, or you've been a federal judge in some case, you know, for 30 years, or even a justice for 30 years, like you don't have an excuse because you have done this every year, number one. Number two, the financial disclosure reports that the justices fill out are far easier to fill out than a 990, right? It's just like mm -hmm. not even close, far easier to fill out. And number three is not only do the justices have the ability to get help, when they get help, they're allowed to be reimbursed up to $1,370 if they get outside assistance from a CPA or tax attorney or whoever. So I think that I am sympathetic and I have always been sympathetic. I mean, the justices have you know, always made errors and, and fixed them. But I am sympathetic when you acknowledge the error, right? I feel like in today's world, you know, saying you're sorry is seen as a weakness. Like, you know, you got to double down on the BS that's coming out of your mouth. You got to double down on that wrong thing you said. You know, it's very Orwellian, but that's where we are in this world. And I think it's the opposite. I really think it's a strength it's to say like, look, I made a mistake. I want to grow from this. I want to learn from this. And I just wish the justices who are making these mistakes far more frequently and on far larger a scale than you or I or anyone else we know would fess up to it. Moving on, let's turn to the court and the substantive 
controversies. Some people might call them scandals. To take a big picture view, how bad is the situation with SCOTUS in your opinion? Some critics call the court compromised or corrupt. What adjective or adjectives would you use? I mean, I think I'd use a prepositional phrase if that's okay. Uh, Sure. I think I call it under duress. And I don't like the idea of calling it compromised or corrupt. I mean, compromise presumes, like I saw an interview earlier today with a presidential candidate who said something like, our goal in Ukraine shouldn't be a Putin loss. It's like, no, that dude sounds compromised. Like, you know, no one (laughs) on SCOTUS is like actively rooting for Putin. You know, like that to me when I hear compromise. And so, so same thing with corrupt. It's like, I mean, those words used to shock. And I understand we use that in our vernacular now in 2023, but I don't like using those words. I think it's under duress. I think it's under duress for two things. I don't work on the decisional plane, right? You know, I mean, I was just reading an article on the major questions doctrine. And obviously, I'm very closely following Mifepristone and all these things that are happening at the court. But in terms of like my day job, you know, I don't talk about the decisions. And I think the decisions are a little bit different than they have been historically in terms of the rate at which precedent is being overturned. But my concern more is with the ethics. And the ethics, I think they're under duress. I think there are actual, you know, legitimate reasons to be concerned about the seriousness that the justices take their ethical responsibilities. And I think that, you know, what makes it worse is not saying, okay, we're going to come up with a code, we're going to file travel reports. I mean, sort of like not the secret, but like one of the weird things about Fix the Court is like none of our fixes are that big, right? And I get criticized from the left all the time, constantly. You know, you're not bold enough. You're not doing enough. Term limits wouldn't solve anything. A code of conduct wouldn't solve anything. And like, fine, that's your belief, whatever. But like all the things that I'm asking for that I think SCOTA should be doing are such relatively small potatoes to what theoretically could be happening, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we could assign each of them has an ethics buddy that, that goes around with them and, you know, checks a little clipboard to be sure that, you know, the food they received isn't more than X amount of dollars or whatever. You know, we could be restructuring it. We could be stripping its jurisdiction. We could be moving it to a barge in the Potomac. None of that's, you know, being talked about, at least from my side. And so I think that it's bad, but they're making it so much worse by just digging in their mm-hmm. heels, being like, it's not a gift to Justice Thomas. It's a gift to his grandnephew. I don't know, man. How many kids do you know pay their own private school tuition? Like, come on. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this then. Are these issues really new? In the early 1990s, Justice Brennan received $140,000 in cash gifts from this wealthy real estate developer. And years ago, before the recent ProPublica reporting this spring, we knew about Justice Scalia at the hunting lodge of some wealthy person. We knew about Justice Ginsburg touring Israel courtesy of a billionaire. So I guess what I'm wondering is, in the past few months, have we been judging old conduct by new standards? Are we applying a kind of ex post facto thing here where for years we kind of were like, ah, the justices have rich friends, whatever. And now suddenly we're clutching our pearls and saying, oh, my God, the justices have rich friends. I think it's the scale. I really do. I mean, I think that the amount of free trips, the amount of gifts, the amount of largesse that specifically Justice Thomas, obviously other justices, but more specifically Justice Thomas has received, pales in comparison to that which a Justice Ginsburg, even potentially Justice Scalia, though there's like dozens of unreported hunting trips that he supposedly got for free. But definitely, you know, more than Justice Ginsburg or Brennan or... Even the Brennan $140,000... Yeah, because the value of the gifts far exceed that. The value of Justice Thomas's gifts far exceed the $140,000. So I don't think it's new standards. I mean, I think, look, I think there has been, and this is, I've been doing this for nine years. I've been trying to push this for nine years, if not longer. There needs to be a stronger response from the fourth estate about what's going on at the Supreme Court, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when I launched 
you know, I had a whole list of justices ethics scandals, every single one of them from, you know, Robert Scalia, Ginsburg on down, Kennedy, you know, and some of that, I mean, Kennedy went on all these junkets with West Publishing in the 90s at a time when West Publishing was a frequent litigant before the Supreme Court, you know, and there were stories about that then. But it seems like, you know, oh, there was this thing and then it was a one-time thing for Kennedy or maybe a three-time thing. And then we reported on it in 1995 or whenever it was, or the LA Times reported on it at the Washington Post. And then we moved on. I think this is just sort of like more sustained because there is more there. There's just more mm-hmm. things coming out about Justice Thomas. Okay. I mean, you will be hearing about it. And I think mm-hmm. to me, it's just really, it's the quantity. I don't think it's a different set of standards. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. So let's go through some of the recent controversies. And maybe since you have a sense of perspective as a long-term observer, maybe you can give each of these sort of a numerical score where one is sort of like a nothing burger, to use one term I heard you use in a a discussion, and 10 is, you know, like a justice taking bribes and then voting a certain way in a case. So let's go through the justices in order of seniority. So Chief Justice Roberts, we know his wife, Jane Sullivan Roberts, earns a very good living as a legal recruiter. And there was also a claim by this whistleblower who used to work with Mrs. Roberts that the chief didn't properly characterize her commission income on earlier financial disclosures. He described it as salary instead of commission. So the Jane Sullivan Roberts thing, one to 10, what do you think? 1.5. <laughs> okay, okay. She's brilliant. She's wealthy. She quit her job and is still brilliant and is still wealthy. And like, right, she's a partner and now she's a recruiter. It's a total job switch. Like, good for her. Okay, fair. So, Justice Thomas, can you highlight for me what you think is the most serious controversy involving Justice Thomas and what numerical score you would give that? And I would not limit you to the ProPublica Harlan Pro stuff. It could also include the Ginny Thomas stuff. So what do you think is the biggest ethical lapse of Justice Thomas in your view? I'm not saying this is my opinion. Yeah, I think that it's sort of hard to just get past the cumulative largesse of the trips that he's taken from you know, Crow and Hyzinga and several other billionaires without reporting it in any way, shape or form and just living a life of luxury that most Americans can only dream of. That being said, I don't think any of the Thomas scandals rise to the level of a 10, but I think they're all bad for Thomas in terms of how they look and bad for the court. And the cumulative effort is that I think people are rationally questioning his behavior and whether or not his vote would change in any one case. If these scandals happen to your local city councilman, mm-hmm. first of all, he'd be out of a job. I mean, it's not even a question. So do you think um, he should be impeached, Thomas? I don't think he should be. No, I don't th- because impeachment at this point would just be political. And I think there's other ways to investigate his culpability here. I mean, I think that okay. the Judicial Conference has ways of doing that. DOJ has ways of doing that. I think he should be fined for not listing his real estate transaction, for not listing the grandnephew's tuition gift and for not listing the loan that was effectively a gift. So, you know, 50 times three, so maybe 150,000 right there. I think that would be a good punishment. But yeah, I think we're at an eight on that one. Okay, it's funny. I can see now why you get criticized by people on the left, because there are many people on the left who would love to see Justice Thomas impeached. Well, it's like, what would that accomplish? Like what, you want to get more clicks for your tweet? Like what would actually 
filing articles of impeachment accomplish? I'm just wondering. I really don't know. You don't have the votes for it, so it's a waste of everyone's time. I like doing things that are feasible, right? Like even the laws that Republicans have said are, oh, they're so partisan, they're so this. Like the Sheldon Whitehouse law that passed Senate Judiciary, most of the things in there have been at times supported by Republicans, right? Like that's what's so Mm -hmm. great. Like an ethics bill passed the Republican-led House Judiciary Committee in 2018. Hmm. You know, the travel stuff in there. Cameras in the court has bipartisan support. Exactly. So to me, it's just like, come on. But yeah, impeachment is just like, okay. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. So third, Justice Alito. I guess the big thing here would be maybe his acceptance of that Alaskan fishing trip, including the private jet travel to get there from two wealthy business people. Yeah, the NML capital thing just doesn't make sense. Like that he didn't know Speaking of bipartisan things that I did, I was briefly the spokesman for a group of bondholders led by Elliott Management. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> okay. So maybe I should recuse myself from this. But I would say six and a half. Okay, you mean that he voted on this case even though it wasn't in the disclosure statement? Or are you saying that he took the trip in the private jet seat to begin with? No, I think a combination. I think, look, he... It's just, I can't believe that he didn't know that Paul Singer was part of this and that he was on I a I don't trip know. They live in a very cloistered world. Some of these justices, I mean, it's like the maybe apocryphal story about President Bush and the scanner at the checkout line at the supermarket. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't be shocked, but fine. Okay, I take your point. Fourth, Justice Sotomayor. So I guess here probably it would be the book deals, including yeah. court staff to coordinate her book events, which I guess members of Congress couldn't have their people do, and also voting on cases involving her publisher. How would you score that? I'd say about a five and a half. I think using the court staff, I mean, look, I get that you want to have that level of intimacy of being able to turn to the person in the office next to you and say, hey, can you help? But like Penguin Random House did a bunch of work coordinating other trips of hers. They could have done all the work there. There could have been other ways of doing this. And I just think the ferocity with which her staff was trying to hawk her book and the fact that it was coming from a government email and a government office was over the line. And in addition to her non-recusals in the three Penguin Random House petitions over the years. Which I think she has acknowledged was a screw-up. Yes. I don't think she's tried to defend that. Justice Kagan, has she had any big issues? No, I mean, there are a few hunting trips that she took with Justice Scalia that might not fall under personal hospitality. I'm looking into those now. But otherwise, I think the one thing that I've called her out on is not recusing in the Obamacare cases. Oh, but I think, didn't she cover herself well? Because I think basically she kind of sent it to Neil Katyal. There's some email that came up where she's like, I don't want to talk about this or something like that. That's like too cute by half. Like, I don't know. I mean, I get it. And like, yeah, I'm sure someone gave her a call being like, hi, you're on the short list. Do not touch this because you know where it's headed. (laughs) And there's no record of that because we only have the emails. But like appearance of impropriety is still part of 455A. So like, it's just, it's... uh, I've called her out on that before. I think it would have been better had she not participated. Okay, okay. Sixth, Justice Gorsuch. You mentioned the publishing thing, but also I guess there was this whole thing about the sale of a vacation property that he co-owned with friends through an LLC to this Greenberg Traurig partner. What would you rate the Gorsuch stuff? 1.5. It's just, Okay. okay, he broke even on the house, which was misreported in a Politico. He didn't make money off of it. And apparently he didn't even know that the person was the Greenberg Traurig partner, yeah, I believe. Exactly. And so it's funny too, because he sold his other home, the actual home that he lived in to, you know, big Democrats as well, kind of funnily enough. But, you know, I, overall, it's like, I get that it's, you know, the timing, but it's really just, it's a little bit graspy at straws for me. Okay. What about Justice Kavanaugh? What issues do you see with him? To me, I think the biggest Not really a scandal, but I just didn't love the fact that he and Justice Alito met with the head of the National Organization for Marriage, which is an anti-LGBT group. 
as you know, around the time of Bostock and Clayton and some other, I mean, I don't recall exactly at which point all those cases were consolidated in which way, but you know which cases I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But I mean, and then like Brian Brown, the head of it, tweeted out a photo with him and it was even more, and I really keep forgetting to look into this, but I, I think it would be really fun, a criminology. But <laughs> two of the players, it was like Brown, Kavanaugh, Alito, and these two clerics that are sort of known for being part of this like anti-papist sect of Catholicism. And I just find that incredibly fascinating. As the son of a rabbi, I just am all about pulpit politics. So, you know, I don't think there was a message in that, but it was just these two random German clerics showed up. Oh, and there's Brian Brown. And wait, is that huh. Alito and Kavanaugh? And they tweeted the photo. It was like with, with Herschel Walker's campaign communications director tweeting out a photo of Walker and Clarence Thomas like seven weeks before the primary. It's like, just mm -hmm. keep the photo as a keepsake. Like, don't tweet now, it out. Yeah, sure. Now, look, I think but they that, were probably That one saying, I didn't love. Yeah, and look, I mean, some of them might say, well, we can't control everything, but they can yeah. at least try. I mean, I know there was the thing with Clarence Thomas and photos of him based on the Horatio Alger Foundation stuff. But yeah. again, I think they, they could maybe try harder. Let me ask you this about Justice Kavanaugh. It's well known that he has taught at multiple law schools. He seems to have a real passion for teaching. Do you have a problem or an issue with the justices teaching at law schools, often in very cushy locales. The New York Times did a big story on this, yeah. but for many of us who are familiar with it, it didn't really strike me as that problematic, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I don't generally have a problem with it. I have a problem with the justices retreating to their ideological priors when they're teaching, right? And when they're doing speaking engagements. So Barrett's always going to Notre Dame, Kavanaugh's mm. speaking and teaching at Notre Dame, and George Mason. Alito was in Rome with Notre Dame. Yep. You know, Sotomayor is Barrett was at the McConnell Center. Exactly, exactly. So that's really where I have a problem with it. And that's how I pitched the story, but that's not how it came <laughs> Okay, okay. Let you me know. ask you this about Justice Kavanaugh. There was a little mini controversy involving Fix oh. the Court, buying <laughs> Kavanaugh-related domain names and having them redirect to resources for sexual assault survivors during the controversy surrounding the sexual assault allegations by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. What are your thoughts on that? You said you don't oppose judicial candidates or judicial yeah. nominees. Doesn't that look a lot like opposing the nominee? I think I did it after he was already confirmed. Maybe not. But yeah, so those URLs I owned for a long time. I mean, I owned MerrickGarland.net back in the <laughs> mid-2010s. I owned RuthBaderGinsburg.com for a little bit. I think I even bought, I don't remember exactly all of them. Because I work in the courts and because I was hearing from a lot of my friends who had experienced certain things in their lives that were being brought up by the Kavanaugh hearings, I felt like I had to do something and probably missed the mark on that one. It's not for me to cast aspersions. I think that's, you know, as, at least from a work perspective and anything I do will sort of be tied to that. So, you know, I think that it was also like a little too cute, like, oh, I own the URL and I do something with it. And I definitely regret it. You know, it was, I think it was up for a couple of weeks and then it redirected to, I think, our term limits page. And then i didn't renew it, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, I noticed because I went the other day and I yeah. said it's available. So if any listener wants to go by, yeah, right, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, BrettKavanaugh.com. So yeah, I mean, it was one of those things. Like I just kept hearing from people being like, "You got to do," you know, like not pe not people in the courts world, just like female friends of mine being like, you know, mm -hmm. and that's sort of what I came up with. And I think I probably missed the mark because it's, it's just like not helpful mm -hmm. and is kitschy. And I try okay. to do things that are helpful and not kitschy. Well, I appreciate your acknowledging error, confessing error there. So looking at Justice Barrett, what do you identify with her? I know there was some controversy involving disclosing the clients of her lawyer husband, Jesse Barrett. What do you see with her? Yeah, the way the law is, like she doesn't have to disclose those clients. And, you know, I, I 
well, was Fix the Court and a bunch of other groups wrote to Congress saying, yeah, we think there should be some client disclosure. I think that, you know, the number that we got was like 5,000 when I honestly would rather it be like 100,000. Like if Jesse Barrett is making $100,000 specifically from Walmart, right? They win a major case and he gets a bonus or I'm not saying billable hours. I'm saying there is like a direct like bonus component because of a specific client that is a large amount of money. And I think 100,000 is right because if you're filing a 990 and you have a consultant, then 100,000, whatever. There's a lot of reasons. I think 100,000 is a good number. And so I think that in that case, but again, that would have to be a change to federal law. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. So I don't begrudge Jesse Barrett for doing a job. I mean, he was able to move a firm to, you know, he's working in South Bend and then was able to sort of stay with his firm and take the lead as the lead guy in DC. And that's fine. But yeah, otherwise, like I don't, I'm trying to think of other Barrett. Well, uh, what about the, oh, the, issue? the no partisan hacks one? Or the not oh. political hacks? Oh, that commentary Center? at the McConnell Center, you mean? Oh, um, just step into it. Oh, that was awful. Come on, man. <laughs> Be more self-aware. Yeah, sometimes some of these things seem a little like unforced errors. But on this issue of disclosing clients, did Fix the Court say anything about Justice Ginsburg and her husband, Marty Ginsburg, who was one of the nation's top tax lawyers, worked at major firms like Freed Frank? I have a vague recollection of some conservatives doing a what about on you guys and saying, what about Marty Ginsburg? I mean, we definitely wrote about him and talked about not only his tax work, but all the stocks that he owned that those companies had cases before the court and Ginsburg didn't recuse back when I was in sixth grade. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> but, enough. Yeah, no, in terms of the Marty, that I don't remember. But my principle stands like a 100K bonus, let us know. And that should just be listed just like, you know, anybody. I mean, I think to me, it's also like with the Ginny Thomas situation, it's like, okay, she's just allowed to say Liberty Consulting on the form every year. And like, I think we need to know what, right? Like we've learned that Liberty Consulting does work related to issues that are before the justices. So I think it would, in the interest of transparency, it would help the public and it would help the justices understand their recusal responsibilities if she listed out everyone that paid her more than $100,000. So, But would she necessarily have to recuse or is it just disclose? Disclose, disclose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, okay. not recuse, but just disclose. Okay. I mean, I think the recusal law would stand. But I think disclosure, you know, more info is good. I want more yeah. sunlight. Again, I, I don't want to like have this thing where, you know, every case has seven or eight justices. I mean, that's yes, definitely people, the goal. Yeah. I mean, one I thing that they are, always say is recusal at the court is different. We can't just randomly get another judge. Yeah, I think this term, I think we've identified only two times where a justice should have recused. And I think we're up to 144 certain merit stage, obviously most of them cert stage recusal. So, and you know, they're both pretty minor. So the goal is not to increase recusal. It's really just to increase disclosure and transparency over some of the potential conflicts of interest that the justices have. And I think in some ways your work and the work of others is gaining some traction because I noticed in the latest round of financial disclosures, they were crossing their T's and dotting their I's a little more. Chief Justice Roberts did clarify that his wife was earning, I think, something like commission and recoverable-based salary, which, as I can say, as a former recruiter, is often meaning you're getting a draw that's set against your commissions. And Justice Kagan revealed that the rental income was from a parking spot. They seem to be yeah. a little more forthcoming, and maybe that's because of your work and others' work. Finally, Justice Jackson, you mentioned earlier in our conversation some issues with her disclosures. What are they, and what would you rate them? Yeah, I think also like maybe a, a one and a half or a two. She went to the Aspen Institute a couple of times and didn't mention it. I mean, the, the reason it's not a one and a half and it's more of a two is 
her husband has been making and I think appears to still be making, I'm looking into that as well, some money from consulting. He's obviously a doctor, but he does some consulting and does some work even in the inside the courtrooms on med mal cases. So, you know, she left off that income and said that she's, I mean, I don't know if she went back and changed the earlier disclosures. I'm trying to I have a press inquiry into the judiciary about that, but she did in this most recent year list that income. And I think that's the right move. Okay, thank you. This was super helpful, this sort of speed round of SCOTUS <laughs> controversy. I don't know how speedy it was, but yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I would remind people that also you do work involving the lower courts. For example, actually, before we started recording, you were telling me about a very interesting complaint you just get filed involving a district judge. Can you just briefly talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So earlier in August, Judge Brantley Starr of the Northern District of Texas issued an order in a case involving Southwest Airlines where basically a woman who worked for Southwest didn't like the fact that Southwest was, its union was in some ways supporting the Women's March because the Women's March back in 2017 had supporters like Planned Parenthood. So she was very vocally against that. And she was fired. She says it was because of her religious beliefs. Southwest said it was because she was not following protocol in terms of how she was being respectful online and to her coworkers. She won her case in the district court. And in addition to winning the case and got a jury verdict, in addition to winning the case, Judge Starr gave sanctions to the Southwest attorneys, requiring them to do eight hours of, quote, religious liberty training, unquote, led by the Alliance Defending Freedom. And the Alliance Defending Freedom wasn't a part of this case, but that was who he assigned it to. And I filed a complaint because I don't like that. I don't think that's great for sectarian organizations to be running attorney sanctions programs. It doesn't matter who it is. I mean, it was sort of ironic that, you know, every week, Jews across the world read, you know, 154th of the Torah. Some weeks are, you know, doubled up. So, but this week, the week that this happened was the Parsha's Shoftim, the, the judges, right? And, you know, the Shoftim is famous because the third verse of it is the justice you shall pursue, which has, you know, been, you know, said a bunch of times by a bunch of different people. I think it's even the title of an RBG book. Yes. But the verse before that, you know, the line says, you know, judges, it literally says judges shall show no partiality. Right. And it's just like the staring, the Torah portion is staring me in the face. It is ironic because I'm using a Jewish source and also Jewish sources should not be part of attorney sanctions. So I understand the irony there, but it's staring at me in the face. Like this notion of partiality has existed for at least 4,000 years. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. depending on who you believe, the Torah is written, you know, so let's say 3,300 years ago for at least 3,300 years. And, you know, we have someone who's clearly showing partiality towards a specific view of religious liberty, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't assign like a random collection of University of Texas professors to do religious liberty training. He assigned ADF and ADF has a specific view, has a sectarian view, has a conservative Christian view. And it would have been just as bad if he assigned it to, you know, the, I forget what they're called, but you know, the liberal Catholics of America, you know, mm -hmm. organization or the One Religion Foundation. So any sectarian view has no place in attorney sanctions. And so, you know, that's why I follow the complaint. And, you know, I think he should be admonished for that. Fair enough. So these are my four standard final questions. I've tweaked them slightly for you. My first question is, what do you believe is the most serious problem facing the court system today? I think it's trust. I really do. I think it's just trust that judges are carrying out their responsibilities in a serious, apolitical, and ethical manner. I mean, you see this erosion, you know, as much as some people think it's coming from groups like mine, I mean, the judiciary is doing it to themselves. And I think 
it's just really unfortunate because by and large, most judges are doing a really good job most of the time. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's sort of the unsaid story here is that, you know, I hear from former federal judges, current lower court judges, other, you know, former magistrate judges all the time. And it's like, they're embarrassed, you know, they're mm-hmm. embarrassed because the court is really, they're supposed to set the standard and they're not. And I think that's having deleterious impacts throughout the judiciary, not only just at the federal level. And I think it's going to be like this for a long time unless we steer the ship in a different direction. And there have been a number of lower court judges who have written about this. I know Judge Michael Ponzor of Massachusetts had a good time yes. to op-ed about this. My second question is, what would you be doing if you were not leading Fix the Court? You've asked this question to your guests before, and you know, I thought about it. And I think, you know, so two answers. So one is, I love planning events. I love being social and going out and doing fun things. And I got married during the pandemic, and I planned my wedding myself. My wife was more than happy to have me do it. And, you know, it got canceled or whatever. But I think party planning would be <laughs> up there. I think I just enjoy bringing people together for okay. happy occasions and just celebrating and listening to good music. I think that would be one. Another thing, this one I thought about more seriously, is sort of like the chief civility officer for the United States Congress. My work has brought me into congressional offices and with different interest groups that are very far to the left and very far to the right and everywhere in between. And I think I have a unique perspective there. Like very few people, (laughs) you know, get to present to Grover Norquist Wednesday morning meeting and also gets calls from the Congressional Progressive Caucus about term limits ideas or whatever. Is there a chief civility officer currently or is that sort of a position you've come up with? It's a position that I've come up with. I think it's a great idea. I just was curious if it already exists. Yeah, no, I don't think it exists. And I think a lot of the attempts at, you know, sort of bringing people together have failed for various reasons. I mean... Gosh, no labels is a joke. What else? The Problem Solvers Caucus has a lot of problems. You know, there have been these groups, but I think the groups are top down. And I think we need sort of a bottom up response of figuring out like, you know, if I can get along with or talk to people from the far sides of the aisle, then I think it's worth, you know, having an actual job that exists to Mm -hmm. further strengthen those bonds. And I think it would be fun to do it. Okay. Third, how much sleep do you get each night? I know you have a young child, so maybe that's affecting your answer to this question. No, no. She's actually a pretty good sleeper, at least at this stage in her life. She turned two a couple months ago and she's great and, you know, brings home all the germs from daycare. But otherwise, you know, she sleeps pretty well. So she's usually out by eight and we're usually out by like 1030 or 11. So I probably sleep about seven, seven and a half hours a night. Oh, good. Very healthy. And lastly, do you have any final message or words of wisdom that you would like to leave with my listeners? Yeah, no, I mean, I love to hear from people. We're, I'm just Gabe at FixTheCourt.com. You know, I'm always happy to chat via you know, email, phone, whatever. I think that, you know, in this realm, there is no monopoly on good ideas. I think a lot of the work that we do has been a result of other people's work that we've seen throughout the year. I mean, the term limits bill that we have is based on, you know, a Steve Calabrese and a Kilamar proposal mm-hmm. from 20 yep. years ago, right? I mean, you know, there's nothing new under the sun <laughs> under the one hand because a lot of these ideas, you know, term limits has been up and down in its popular. I mean, the anti-federalists wanted term limits. So like it's been up and down in its popularity in the last 230 years. But, you know, I think that there are definitely different ways of figuring out how to get cameras or figuring out how to get ethics or, you know, maybe we do need to stop the single judge divisions within districts or whatever it is, or this is a better strategy for ending harassment in the judiciary, especially with clerks. So like, 
I'm always open to hearing new ideas. If you want to swear at me, that's cool too. Get a few of those a week. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that you know there are a lot of people that respect the judiciary and believe it to be you know the crown jewel of our democracy. And again, speaking purely from a institutional perspective, I'm not talking about the opinions, but from an institutional perspective, clearly it has fallen in the last few years. And a lot of it has been due to the justices and lower court judges own errors. And I think that they have shown a reluctance to change, which is unfortunate, which is, I think, why my organization exists to push them to a better place and to push Congress to get them, the justices and the lower court judges to a better place. And we are willing, able to take on any and all partners and and any all thoughts and really think that this should be, you know, not just me and my staff and a few other groups, but really a national conversation and a collaborative effort to ensure that the most powerful, least accountable branch of government has some more ethical guardrails as we move deeper into the 21st century. Well, thank you so much, Gabe. I always appreciate your willingness to engage and debate, and I'm grateful to you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Thanks so much to Gabe Roth for joining me. We might not agree on everything, but we do share a passion for the judiciary and a desire to make it the best that it can be. I also appreciate his willingness to engage with his critics and to acknowledge mistakes which too few people are willing to do these days. Thanks to Nextfirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. Nextfirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact Nextfirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, September 6th. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.